Alright folks, well blessed be his name, we're entering now into the parasha of Terumah, and uh, this is a very, very, among many others parasha, very important one, because I believe that what we're going through and what we're witnessing in the Torah is some, it's a blueprint for us today. Now you may be asking, how is it that Terumah, Mishpatim, and all the parashas that we covered thus so far, how is it that it is a blueprint for us today? Very simple, folks, because remember, now Hashem it is redeeming a nation that was enslaved to Egypt. Now, can we agree that you have been redeemed from your Egypt? In the same way. Because, you know, the New Testament actually alludes this with you being a servant to sin and death. A slave, essentially, to sin and death. And... Is it true that the blood of the Messiah, which by the way, Apostle Paul, Rav Shaul, and the Brichadashah says that Yeshua is our Passover lamb. Mm -hmm. This is all Midrash, okay, because Paul, you know, Rav Shaul was a, you know, he was a rabbi of rabbis. Rav Shaul understood these things, so he is speaking in the context of what? Rabbinical literature. This is why he said Yeshua is our Passover lamb. By definition, that doesn't even make sense. How can Yeshua be a Passover lamb? Hashem doesn't accept human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. This is Midrash. We have to understand this and explain it the way the Jewish people understood it at that time. So because of the Passover lamb, Yeshua, we have now been free from our Egypt. And let's face it, for some of us, the journey's been longer than others. <laughs> right? I mean, some of us are still journeying. Some of us are still, you know, on the, on the seat of reeds. <laughs> We're still stuck there. We haven't quite, quite, quite frankly, we haven't crossed over yet. And some of us have crossed over, but we are still at the seashore. Some of us have entered into the wilderness. <coughs> we are in a different stage of this exodus from Egypt, folks, right? Spiritually speaking. So there's a lot in here because if you notice, the father is working in a very systematic way. How he's doing things. And one of the first things that we notice from, uh, from the parsha is that the first order of business is you need the blood of the lamb before you can even come out of Egypt. Interesting. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to give you all my laws, get him right, and then I'll take you out. That's not the order. The order is, okay, the first thing is first. You need to recognize that you need salvation, right? And you need to apply the blood of the doorpost. You need to accept the blood of the Passover lamb. Now that you have that, what happened next? They came out of Egypt. And what happened next? Oh, this is the big one. God gave them the Torah. And what was the purpose? So that they can learn to walk as a free nation. See, what we call today bondage, God declared was actually freedom. Amazing how we twist things around, don't we? Very opposites, thank you. God said this is freedom for you because you have been redeemed. I'm going to teach you what it's like to walk redeemed because you have accepted me as your master. I'm going to show you now how to serve me. It's really not that hard when you really think about it, folks. It's not that hard. We make it harder than it is. So what happens? He gives them the Torah. And what happened with the children of Israel? 
They said, we cannot take it. We cannot hear the voice of God. Be careful what you pray for, folks. Because they were telling Moses, we want to see God. Moses, we don't believe what you're saying. <clears throat> I think those are your own words, Moses. Did God really say this to you? How often do we do that today? When an anointed man of God speaks into your life and we doubt. Guess what, folks? It's nothing new. They doubted Moses. So what did he do? Okay, you don't believe me? Fine. Let's all of us go up to the mountain. And what happened? It says that the voice of Hashem came down in thunder and lightning, winds. And the people said, Moses, you go up to speak to God. Forget it. We cannot take this anymore. The sound of the shofar blew, and it blew louder and louder and louder. And the people said, no, I can't take it anymore. You go, Moses. You tell us what God has to say. And now he gave him the mishpatim. We ended it with last week's portion, mishpatim. Now, according to Hazal, the mishpatim says something that was still given in Sinai with the sound of the thunder and the lightning. Hashem was still talking. It didn't stop at the Ten Commandments, folks. He didn't just give Ten Commandments. The people can only take ten. That's what we're reading. He did continue speaking, which, by the way, we picked up last week with Mishpatim, and now this week with Terumah. And what is he sharing? He's sharing all this with Moses. So for what purpose? So that he can relate this to the people. Because what's happening? They are coming out of a culture that was based and it was founded in idolatry. They came out of a culture that had its own way of living. They came out of a system that was contrary to the new master that they were going to serve. We have to see the order of this, how God is doing it. He's taking them out, he's equipping them, he's preparing them so that they can understand how to be a survive as a nation and be one nation, folks, under him. You know, you ever heard the term, one nation under God? Well, it's not necessarily a bad statement. Problem is that we are not one nation under God. Because one nation under God means that we will surrender our will to him. It's not this American pride that we hear about today, folks. It's surrendering to the creator. That's one nation under God. So look, now we come in. Last week we ended up with Moses. Hashem calling Moses, and Moses went up to the mountain. It says, into the mist. It was the clouds. And Hashem spoke to him. And now we pick up this week with Terumah. Amen? So Terumah, what is Terumah? Well, Hazar teaches folks that really there is no English equivalency for this word. It's one of those words in a language that really just doesn't translate. If you speak more than one language, you understand what I mean. There are certain words in other culture that just doesn't translate. Teruma happens to be one of them. The best thing they can do is come up with what we have today. What is teruma? It means a contribution, a gift. Contribution to be set apart for the priest, the best choice, a separation, so to speak. Now, Hazad teaches that the Torah, which is the contribution, believe it or not, is 1 in 52. Or 1 in 50, if I'm sorry. That's 2%. That's it. 2%. He's asking from the people as Torah, 
Not as a tie, as terma. As an offering. <coughs> Do you know how much the government asks for your money today? Every year? Do you know the percentage? I guarantee you it's more than 2%. I guarantee you it's more than 10%. I think I heard it was close to like 30 or 40 percent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One in 50, if Hazel says, is the teruma. But look, this word comes from the root word of ruma. What is ruma? It means he was lifted up. It means to elevate. Now, let me read something very interesting to you that Rabbi Hirsch had to say that I thought was very interesting concerning this. Got my glasses. He says in here, the true sense of the word has no English equivalency. It implies a separation of a portion of one's resources to be set aside for a higher purpose. The root of the word, room, to uplift, thus the effect of this contribution was to elevate the giver. Interesting. The idea of terumah was for the purpose not for Hashem but rather for the giver. Very interesting. I want you to meditate on that for just a minute. So it says, thus the effect of this contribution was to elevate the giver and his concept of the purpose of the wealth in which God has blessed him, folks. Let me ask you a question, folks. If you love somebody, right, naturally we like to give gifts to somebody, right? That's the normal of human beings. We want to buy things for people. You know, we buy things for our children, uh, husbands, wife, you know, and, and typically we want to get them something they, that they love. That's the idea. But most importantly, we want to give a gift that they don't have. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not going to buy this Hawaiian shirt if he owns 10. What appreciation is on that? So it's that concept of, you know, what can we possibly bring to God? Think about that. I want you to ask that question right now. Because this, in a sense, the terumah is between you and the Father. You're not giving it to the church. By the way, folks, I would like for anybody here to tell me within the last 10 years, when was the last time you wrote a check to Hashem? <laughs> because, I mean, they have to do the same. What, what, how do we write a check to? To Hashem? And what bank am I going to deposit? Which, which, which one is God's bank? Where do I find it? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? How do we actually give to God? Because in our preconceived ideas, we think it has to be something tangible. I have to see him. I have to write his name to make sure that he gets it. You know? How do we give to God, folks? Look, that Umar is going to answer a lot of questions. First and foremost, this parasha has a lot to do with the building of the tabernacle. But I'm going to submit something to you today. It's more than building the tabernacle. This parasha, by the way, before I even go into that, let me ask a question. How many of you want the Messiah to return? Mm -hmm. True? Okay. This parasha has to do with the ushering of the King Messiah. Now, you've been wondering, how is Terumah connected with the coming of the Messiah? You'll see what I'm talking about in just a second here. First, let's start. Exodus 25, 2 says, Speak to the people of Israel, right? And it says that they take for me a contribution. Right? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. First of all, let's open up with the statement. Who is the contribution for? <coughs> Hashem. Hashem. He said, 
speak to the children of Israel that they take for me a contribution. It says, it is for me. Let's look at this in the Hebrew to see how it reads in the Hebrew. Compare it to the English. Okay? In the Hebrew it says, Dabet el b'nei Israel. Speak to the children of Israel. It says, right? Vayichuli, that is to take, that is from the Hebrew word yacha, to take, vayichuli, terumah. We discussed what terumah is already. A contribution, a gift. Okay? Now it says in here, Me'et kol ish asher, it says. From all who what? Men, in which asher, yitvenu livo. What is yitvenu? Yitvenu actually carries the connotation of a willing heart. That's why it's translated in your English translation as, you know, whose heart is moved. So yitvenu is from the word nadav, and I'm going to cover that in a minute, it carries that connotation. So it says, Yitvenu livo, now it says in here, take tichud eter mati. Now let me go back. It says in here, speak to the children of Israel that they take from me a contribution, right? From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Now the me, right, at the end, guess what? It says, the me is the Aleph Tav. Who's the Aleph Tav? Yeshua. This contribution has to do with the Aleph and the Tav. It's connected with me. When he said me, it's talking about, again, the Aleph Tav. The definite article points to the divinity, divine, according to Hazal. So this ha, this um, Terumah, which meant Terumati, that's his personal pronoun there, it's talking about the Aleph Ta, and we are to what? Do it with Yidvenu. What is the Yidvenu? The root word is Nadaf. Free will, willingness. They have freely offered. And you know what's happening in here, folks? I love what the Father's doing. Because they open up saying that he, is, he wants to build something. I will submit to you today, the Father is still in the business of building something. The question is, what is he building? Because you see, if he is building something, then we need to line up with what he's building. We don't want to work opposite of what he's doing. We want to come in an agreement with what he's doing. Because either we're building with him, or we're building our own kingdom. True. Are we building our own kingdom? Or are we building, we helping build his kingdom? Look, 1928 Webster Dictionary says what free will is. It says the power of directing your own actions without restraint by necessity or faith, basically. The power of directing your own actions is to say, I will to do this today. Not because I've been forced, not because I've been coerced, not because I'm trying to seek benefit from it. I willingly do this because I see a purpose. I understand what the Father is doing. I want to line up with that willingly. I surrender my will to His will. That's a tough one, folks. I heard a very wise man said that it takes a bigger man to submit his will to another mm -hmm. than to fight. 
Anybody can fight. Anybody can overpower somebody else by strength. But real strength is to surrender your will to somebody else. And it takes a lot more strength to do that, folks, when you really think about it. Just like it takes a lot more strength <coughs> to be quiet. Doesn't it? Just like it takes a lot more strength to walk away. Doesn't it? Mm. Look. In Chazam Sofer, it says this, folks. Look. In the parasha we read, it says, Asher Yidvenu Livo. We just read about that. In which motivates his heart, Livo. Look what Chazam Sofer says. Hasem Sofer asks this, since mine is the silver and mine is the gold, the word of Hashem in Haggai chapter 2, 8, the Bible, that's what he says, mine is the silver, mine is the gold, and Hashem is the earth and its fullness, Psalms 24, 1. So in other words, Hashem owns all the silver, he owns all the gold, and he owns everything. He owns the universe, he owns the stars. He owns the galaxy. Well, look what he presents in here. What is really being given for me when donations are given to the tabernacle since it all belongs to Hashem already? Think about it. What can we possibly give to God when he owns everything? Because it's a very good question, folks, because a lot of times they say, I want to do something special for God. And I want to give him something special. I can't think of anything that I can give to certain people because they own it already. Personally, me. I don't know what to give them. Like, again, you don't want to give an old, you know, shirt that they already own. You don't want to give them that George Foreman grill when he owns five. That's not special. Well, let me ask you this. In the same note, what can we give God? What can you possibly give him? But there is something that you can give him. See, I have concluded, folks, that the best gift in the world is to give something that somebody doesn't own. True? Because yeah. if they own it, it's not a gift, really, technically. It's like, well, I own one anyway. It's not special. But when they don't own something, then it's something special. But what is it that Hashem doesn't own? What is it that he doesn't own that you can possibly give him? You, the creation, can give the creator. Well, look what, it, look what the sages of Israel have to say. The answer, the answers, or he answers that, in fact, all one can give is nedivetu lava. What is that in Hebrew? His motivation. Look, his desire to give. Similarly, when describing the half shekel, which we'll talk later when we get into the parashah of the half shekel, that was to be given annually, Rashi quotes that the Midrash says that Hashem showed Moses a coin of fire, according to the Midrash. This is very interesting, though. And instructed him like this, they shall give. The fire, the enthusiasm, the love of Hashem that motivates them. That is the essential gift that you can give God. What can we give God? The fire. The enthusiasm, your free will. He doesn't own any of those things. Those are yours. That's the only thing we can surrender to him. It's a very, very amazing thing, folks. When you really sit down 
and meditate on that. Because I know for me, I love to give Hashem anything that I don't own. Give Him everything. Because I think He deserves it. And I think He's definitely worthy of it. So look, Deuteronomy 6.5. This comes in agreement with Deuteronomy 6.5. Now we, we quote the Shema. Every week we quote the Shema. Many of us don't even understand what that means. Look, in, in Deuteronomy 6.5 it says, Ve'ahavta et Hashem Elochecha. Right? Bekol levacha. And with all your heart, you have to love Aleph Tav Hashem, your God, with all your levavecha, your heart. Vechol nafshecha, with all your soul. Vechol meldecha. This, this scripture here has been translated as with all your might. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, right? But the problem is that it really doesn't give justice to the, translate, uh, to the word in Hebrew, meldecha. Bechol meldecha means what? It's for the Hebrew word mel. It means your increase, your abundance, and your resources. As a matter of fact, in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bibles, you will never find that it says might. It says resources. You want to know why he puts that in there? That is not interesting in your wallet, folks. Really? The mere little monies that you got in the bank, you think God cares about it? He owns everything. It's about you. It's testing your heart because let's face it, folks. All is well and everything is good until we have to reach to our pockets. All bets are off there. <laughs> true? I know this is hard, but it's true. We all have to examine our hearts. True be told. Because if he is Lord, then he needs to be Lord over all. True? You can't say, well, you are Lord over all except for my wallet, God. I'll give you the scraps. Let me just figure out the bills of the month, and then you get the leftovers, okay? Folks, this is not a prosperity gospel, believe me. I'm, we're going to stop here because I really want to get on the focus of the teaching. But one of the things that we do need to understand is that giving, it's not for your benefit. I mean, it's for your benefit, but it's not for your prosperity. See, the churches today have taught that if you give, Giving to God is like the stock market. As a matter of fact, they even got a, 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 a banking now that's Christian-owned, and it's actually stocks. You invest in that to get returns. No, I'm being so serious. God is not a stock market. You don't give in order to get back. You give because it's your duty. You give because he is your God. You give because you want to see his kingdom increase. Irregardless whether you get anything back. That's the problem. It's our mentality. The prosperity gospel has defiled this. Just like everything else that God says. But let me ask you all a question, folks. Just because something is defiled, does it nullify the word? I will submit to you the Sabbath has been defiled. Do we stop doing Sabbath? We have to wake up, folks. Because... What is the goal of the enemy? The goal of the enemy is to get you to commit lawlessness. The goal of the enemy is to, for you to say, ah, there it is. To push you away from something that God decreed in his word. God never said, follow me, obey me, only if the leader is doing something right. He said, you obey me because I'm going to deal with you. Forget about the leader. If the leader is doing something wrong, guess what? 
And he's got even double accountability. You should be feeling sorry for him. You do your duty. We don't, we don't, we not, we not move, and you should not be moved by the lack of faith of other people, folks. We are not moved because our neighbor doesn't give. We're not moved because, well, look, we see a bunch of preachers with a, you know, $3.5 million houses and private jets. I'm not going to take care of that pastor. I'm not supporting none of these guys. I'm not supporting none of these uh, synagogues, assemblies. Look the way they live. Doesn't matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter. If they live that way, that's between them and God. <coughs> Honestly. God never said, you know, only give if their house is modest. That's the business. And by the way, you need to use the sermon. Either way. If you see that something's not right, then your job is to remove yourself from the assembly and find an assembly that you know God is saying, this is stuff male. It's good. It's kosher. But we cannot be moved by what the lack of people, what they're doing. So Moadecha means that you are to love him with everything, including your increase. Look at this. Tomas Rashi says this concerning Deuteronomy 6.5. And with all your resources, even if the love of God causes you to lose all your money. I didn't come up with it. The sages of Israel had this already. Look, there are people who will risk their lives to save their money. Is that true? Absolutely. Relationships are broken because of money. We kill for money today. To protect it, that is. Why can't we take that passion that we have, protecting our money, and actually shift that to God? Think about it. And Rashi has a very good point. It says in here, even those who put wealth above life, which there's a whole lot of that going around, must place love of God above all as well. Because remember, folks, you don't own nothing in here. You don't even own your property. Stop paying taxes and we'll see. <laughs> it's all a false sense of security, folks. You are strangers in this land as Hashem has spoken. Stop thinking that you own. You don't own nothing. You came without nothing. You are leaving without nothing. And the quicker that settles with you, the quicker you can come into the peace of the Lord and actually come and help build the house of the Lord. And usher the coming of the Messiah and the third temple, by the way. We're going to see how that connects. Look, Yeshua taught about this. So much. How many of you know that 60 to 70% of Yeshua's teaching had to do with money? You want to know why? Because they have the same issues that we have today. Nothing has changed. The poor get poor, the rich get richer. It's happened since the fall of Adam, folks. And it's going to continue happening until he returns. But what can we do to make a difference? Well, that's what Terumah is teaching us. Look, Matthew 6, 24 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. This is an idiom, a common idiom in the first century that had to do with being stingy, basically. A person who's a cheerful giver and a person who is not. So, look what he says in here. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Think about it. No one immediately in verse 24, look what he says. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Literally in Greek, mammon which is kesef, gold, silver, resources. Either you're serving God or you're serving money. You may say, well, how is that connect? Folks, just look today. Look today at why there's so many abominations <coughs> in the churches today. Because of this. See, if we get a donor that comes into your church and he donates fifty, sixty thousand $60,000, I can't kick that door. I cannot kick that member. I'll even know... He's bringing abominations to the church. We'll let it pass. I never saw that. This is what's happening. The people are running the churches. There's no leaders anymore. The people tell the pastor what to do. The people tell the pastor how the people need to be spiritually. Why? It's this, this right here, folks. That's why it's very political. Whenever there's politics, there's money involved. It's a business. Thank you. We cannot serve God in money, folks. At one point, that's going to have to resonate right with us and understand it. Look. Mark 12, 41 through 42. Look what it says in here. And sitting opposite to the treasury, he saw how the people put copper into the treasury. Now, may I remind you, why are the people doing this? <coughs> this is all part of the temple service. They were doing this. And they were to bring in money. There were synagogues at that time too. People were bringing money to the synagogue. The synagogues was an extension of the temple. When the temple became destroyed, where did they go? To the synagogues. Even Hazar teaches on that. There are many sanctuaries they call them. Look, and many rich ones put in much, and a poor widow came and threw in two small copper coins, which amount to a set. This literally. It's yelling terumah. Because terumah is not about the amount that you give. Terumah is about the heart and how you give. Mm -hmm. If you, you don't understand terumah, you're not going to understand this. Why did Yeshua saw this woman more worthy when she gave less? Because you want to know why? And sitting and calling near his disciple once, his taught ones, he said to them, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more that all those put in the treasury. Why? For they all put out of their excess. What they were giving was not terumah. She was giving terumah. She was giving with the motivation of her heart. And look what it says in here. For they all put out of the excess, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her entirely livelihood. I don't want to hear any excuses, folks. This is the kind of faith that Hashem is looking for his people. By the way, this is the only way that we're going to usher the Messiah back. And I'm going to connect this now with verse 8, and we're going to see here in a minute. Look, she gave Terumah because she gave everything, folks. It didn't say how much she needed to give. Everything that they were putting in the treasury department and the treasury was Terumah. It wasn't tithes. It had nothing to do with it. It was terumah. It's whatever motivates your heart to do. She gave out of her poverty. She gave it all. 
Look, Exodus 25, 3 and 7 says, And this is the contribution that you should receive from them. Now remember, they're coming out out of the wilderness, right? Or they're coming out of Egypt. They're coming into the wilderness. They got the Torah. But what do they need now? A place to worship. A sanctuary. <coughs> you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, a fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ram skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephah and for the breastplate. Now, all of this right here that he has mentioned, there's so much there, folks. I have time to put everything today, but there's something that I want to share. All this has to do with the redemption, the geulah, the final the final redemption of Israel. Let me share something with you in here. Rabbi Be'yachai from Yahul Moshiach says this. The items for contribution mentioned in verses 1 through 7 allude to the future redemption of Israel. How is it that the goat's hair, the gold and the silver, the spices, the fragrance, how does this connect? We must ask to the redemption of Israel. Look, he says this, look. The oil for lighting that we read in Exodus 26.6 alludes to the King Messiah. Why? Well, look, in Psalms 132.17, it says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. So the sages see the connection in here with the oil as the Mashiach, by the way, which is, has to do with anointing. And it connects it to Yeshua. What about here? Spices for the anointing oil, Exodus 26, 6. Alludes in here to the future anointing of the high priest, which will be accomplished through Messiah himself. The fragrant incense, Exodus 26, 6. Alludes to the ingathering of the exiles. Now, how is it that fragrant incense has to do anything with the exiles? Look. Ezekiel 20, 41 says this. As soothing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from among the people. So Ezekiel 40 is alluding the fragrance with the actual people coming and the gathering of the people. That is the Geulah. Mm -hmm. Onyx stones, Exodus 25, 7, allude to the ruby stones of the new Jerusalem, folks. This is why Chazad teaches that this Terumah essentially connects to the third temple and to the ushering of the Mashiach. And what are the requirements for these things is what we've been discussing though so far. See, the people are waiting for the world to get worse or the Mashiach to come, and I always say that is wrong thinking. That's not Jewish thinking. We don't wait for the world to get worse. We walk in holiness. We do the things that God says so that we can usher the Mashiach back. It's different thinking. People are waiting for the apocalypse to be happening out there. They're waiting for some rocket to come down and think, okay, the end of the world, God is coming. It's not about that. It's the things that you do today that are going to usher him to come back. Your zealousness for him today. The gathering, what we're doing right now as a community. This motivates the heart of the king to return back to his people. New Jerusalem, Isaiah 54, 12. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies, he says. Setting stones for the ephah, Exodus 25, 7. 
alludes to the crystals and gems of the New Jerusalem, folks. Isaiah 54, 12 says, And your gates of crystal and your entire wall are precious stones. He's talking about. You know, it's interesting that when you read about this New Jerusalem, the walls are going to have gems, stones. And where are we going to get that from? It says in Ezekiel that the Lord himself will be the one to build the third temple. I'm going to connect this in a minute. See, this is all connecting to the final temple, the third temple, folks. That's why I personally believe that this temple is not going to be built now. Not in fullness. We may have the altar, but I don't believe the temple is going to be because the Lord is going to build the third temple. Look. Exodus 25, 8. So what was the purpose of all this? The onyx, the stones... The Terumah, the gifting and the offerings, he says this, look, he says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Very important part of scripture, folks. Look what in verse 8 in Hebrew says this. Ve'asu, Leah says, Mikdash. Ve'shachati betocham. This is amazing. Ve'asu, what is Asuli? You are to do. You are to make. You are to fashion something for me, he says. But what is it that we are, what is it that we are to do? What is it that we are to fashion Asu for the Heavenly Father? Do you understand that you play a role in this? We're thinking God is going to do it all. It's that mentality that we're coming out of. You play a role in what Hashem is doing. Mikdash, he says. What is Mikdash? It's translated as a sanctuary. But that's not really the justice for that word Mikdash. He says that you are to Asuli Mikdash. What is Mikdash? Look, Mikdash means something that's dedicated, consecrated, sanctified. Even something that's betrothed. What is it about Mikdash? This makes Mikdash so important for the Heavenly Father. By the way, is the Mikdash the sanctuary or the Mishkan the sanctuary? What is the difference between the Mishkan and the Mikdash? Which one is it? Because it says Mishkan. Mishkan is what we know today as the tabernacle. So what is the mikdash? Because he said the first thing you need to do, you need to build a mikdash. So then I can shahan, I can dwell. So let's see this, folks. What's very interesting about this mikdash is this letter right here in Hebrew. Look, I'm going to share this with you. Rabbi Chaim Yosef says this. This Torah portion gives us the condition for the coming of the Messiah and the third temple. Now, we all want the same thing, don't we? We want the Mashiach and we want the third temple. This is what the rabbis say. This is what it connects. How do we do it and how we accomplish this? So what makes a Mikdash? We need to understand this concept before we move further. Look, it is the Kuf and Mikdash that makes a Mikdash. What is the Kuf? The Kuf. Is Kedusha. What is Kedusha? Look. Sanctification. 
You see, Mikdash has to do with the sanctification of the people. The Father works in the inside before he established the outside. What is he working on today? He's building the sanctuary today, the Mikdash. Because in order for the Mikdash to come, or the Shakan to come, it says that it's Betochenu. I will dwell, and your translation says, I will dwell Monday. In Hebrew, Betocham literally means in you. <coughs> so the purpose of the Mikdash, which is the Kedushah, the sanctification, is so the Heavenly Father can dwell inside of you. Interesting. Look, something happens with this Kedushah, the sanctification, and this word Mikdash. If I take this Kedushah, if I take this Kuf in Hebrew, if I eliminate this letter, okay, and I flip this, guess what word I get? Very interesting. This is important because today there's churches everywhere. In every quarter mile you'll find one for the most part, right? I have never witnessed so many churches. Even when I was growing up, I don't remember that many churches. I mean, churches were like three, five, seven miles apart, maybe 10, even 15 apart. You have to take a bus to go to one of them. So that you can walk in every corner of this one. This is the understanding of the big dash. Look, if I take the kuf away and I flip these letters, I get shamet. If we take the kuf from Mishkan, we get shamet. What is shamet? Vanity. <laughs> if we are not operating in holiness to build a sanctuary, then it is vanity for the Lord. What does the word says? If the temple is not being built in holiness in Kedushah, the people, I'm not talking about the physical building, the people, the Kedushah, then our actions are in vain, folks. Look, Psalms 127, 1 and 2 says this. Unless Hashem builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The very Bible says it. It proves what Mikdash is all about. If we take the Kedushah, the sanctification, then we are building things in vanity. Is that true? Yep. Can we witness it today? Yep. Million dollar buildings, but they're all dead bone men's inside. It's all vanity. This is the reason, folks, that the tabernacle, I don't know if you know this piece of information, the tabernacle lasted longer than both temples put together. The temple of Solomon was glorious. The second temple, not so much. It was inferior to Solomon's. But the tent of meeting, which was a tent, lasted longer than both of those temples put together. Now one might ask, why and how is this possible that a tent can last longer than two glorious buildings with rubies and stones? Because we read later in Exodus 36 that the people had to tell Moses uh, that Moses had to tell the people, stop giving. It's too much. The willingness of the people to build this sanctuary, the condition of their heart, is why the sanctuary lasted so long. Solomon had to tax them to get money off of them. But in the tabernacle, it wasn't so. In the tabernacle, people kept giving. What was the last time you heard of a, a leader in the church saying, stop giving? You're giving me too much. 
Today we have to come up with all these formulas to entice people to give. That's ridiculous. Oh, what am I going to get? You know, we see it on the infomercials all the time. You know, donate in here and you get this. What kind of nonsense is that? But that's only here, folks. You don't see that nonsense in Israel. No way you see that in Israel. The synagogues, they don't do none of that nonsense. That's here in America. Our, our mindset here today. <coughs> the people supposed to be given willingly. That's why this sanctification of the Kedusha and connecting with the tabernacle, it lasted so long. It's revealing the inside. Because what makes the church, folks? The people. The outside is just a shell that's going to be destroyed. It's the people. This is what incense when he reads. Now we could go back in here so you can see what I'm talking about. Look, when it says in here, let them make me a sanctuary, it's talking about the people. And Mikdash, that I may dwell in their midst. Let them make me a sanctuary, the Skedushah, so that I can dwell in them. Because the goal that has always been is for the Father to dwell in you. That's always been the goal. The question is then, why do we have sanctuaries today? Well, we're going to answer that in just a minute here. Why do we have sanctuaries today? If the goal of the Father is always for Him to dwell in us as we Kedusha. Look, let me go in ahead in here. So it says in here, unless Hashem builds the house, those who build it and labor, and labor in vain. Unless Hashem watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Comes in agreement with Solomon talks. Everything under this sun is vanity. Vanity of vanities, folks. And until we start recognizing that, folks, really, we're really not going to really understand the heart of the Father and what he desires from us. We all need, you see, a sanctuary for a for sanctuary to grow. The one thing that we need is we need all to be a hat. One for purpose, at least purpose. And that, same, that purpose needs to be the same for all of us here today, today, and that is to build his kingdom here on earth. The quicker we do that, the quicker the Messiah returns. That's what we're not understanding. The quicker he returns, the quick, and not just to mention the quicker he returns, the quicker we can experience the love of Hashem in us, truly. And this is what we all need to do. Isaiah 1.13 says, bring me no more vain offerings, he says. Do you know that this is such thing as a vain offering? Yes, it's a vain offering. It's something that's not even from your heart. You're doing it for alternative reasons. Look, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Is incense something that he doesn't recommend in the Torah? Yes, he does. But this incense that they're bringing up, he's not liking it. Because of the heart of the person giving. Just like the widow's mite, folks. He saw that much more honorable than the ones who were giving majorly. 
So, new moon and Sabbath, and the calling of convocation, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Did he not, did he not command us to keep the Sabbath? Yes. Again, do you see what it's saying here in Isaiah 113, folks? That even though you keep the Sabbath, even though you eat kosher, even though you get it, folks, that means nothing. If it's not coming from a pure heart, if it's not coming with a desire to do it, it is vanity in the eyes of Hashem. Ooh, wow. We just took this to a whole different level. Because you see, you know what this is causing us to do? This is causing us to examine our own hearts now. That's not good. But I think it's important because guess what? We're coming into Passover next month. The renewing of the vows with your king. And you want to make sure, folks, that your heart and your desire and your spirit is lining up with what he's wanting to do. That's why this is so important. Look what Swarno says that I thought was very interesting. He says this, the tabernacle was made necessary only because of Israel's lapse into, into virtual idolatry. This is really amazing because this connects back to the fall of Adam. Did Adam have a tabernacle? Like a physical building to go meet Hashem? No. No. Look, he maintains that no temple should have been needed after the revelation at Sinai. In reality. Because the entire nation achieved the level of prophecy and every Jew was worthy for the Shekinah, that is the dwelling, to rest upon him. That means the people. As it later did not on the tabernacle and on the temple. Only after Israel fell from the high level of spirituality as a result of the golden calf was it necessary to have a central place of worship. That makes perfect sense what Swarno is saying because that actually comes in agreement with Genesis and the fall of mankind of Adam. A place now is needed because that relationship has been what? Severed. Right? Now we need a place to go. But that's why in Teruma, in this portion, the first thing he says that you have to build a sanctuary for me first. It is pleasing for him. He cares more about you and dwelling in you than you building a $5 million building. He doesn't care about the $5 million building. And honestly, think about it. From his perspective, that $5 million building, what does it look like for him when he is glorious? It probably looks like a cheap little cartoon thing. It's just nothing. Piece of cardboard. In his eyes, he's interested in you. He's interested in the sanctuary. So the central sanctuary was needed because of the stubbornness of the people. Now I want to connect Yeshua and the tabernacle. Because you see, connecting Yeshua and this tabernacle that, we have, that he's building now here in Tarumah, which connects to the Mashiach, is going to make perfect sense in our role here today. Because remember, whatever role the Messiah plays, you play this is a very Jewish concept. As the Mashiach is, so are we. But that's not what we've been taught. We've been taught, okay, you do it all. Kind of like what Israel said to Moses, you go out there, Moses. We don't want no part of that. No. He wants us to be part of that. So let's connect now Yeshua and this tabernacle. Shadows of Messiah, volume 2, says this. 
Messiah fulfills this passage literally in the Terumah. Why? Look. While he was among us in the flesh, the physical body of Yeshua created a perfect sanctuary for God to dwell among his people. What is the book of John said in the opening? And the word became flesh and did what? Well. And dwelt. Shachan in Hebrew. He shachan with us. He dwelt with us. But how did the Lord dwell with us? Through the body of Mashiach. This is amazing. Look. It says in here, this is why Yeshua spoke of himself as the temple of God. Is that true? He did. How many times did he say that I'm the temple of the living God? But look, he warned, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll rise it up again. Didn't he not say that in the book of John? Yes. Tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll build it again. And what did the Pharisees say? Are you going to build it again? It has taken us 40 years to build this temple. <laughs> the book of John proceeds to say, but the temple that he was talking about was his. This is very prophetic, folks, because what happened in 70 AD? The temple got destroyed. And what's going to happen again? The temple is coming to back. The third temple is coming back. That's what he says. In three days, I'll build it again. Now, he in three days resurrected. But let's take this even at a deeper level in the Midrash. A day equals a thousand years. From that point, he was saying three days from that point, I will rebuild this temple. That is talking about the temple of Ezekiel. That he said the Lord himself will build the temple. The falling tabernacle of David will rise again. When? In the Millennium Sabbath. In the Olam Haba. <coughs> this is so amazing. But look, let's continue here. Destroy this temple in three days and I'll rise it up again. His body was a spiritual temple, the holy dwelling place of God. He was speaking of the temple of his body. They say, moving on in here. Now, that, per that right here, which is true, we read it in John chapter 2, makes perfect sense with what we just talking about of Mikdash, the sanctuary. The sanctuary is all of us. Just as Yeshua was a sanctuary for God to dwell with us. Through Messiah, the body, the, 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 the Mishkan, now we can have that fellowship. Look. These words hint towards a connection between the physical body of Yeshua and the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Yeshua's suffering and death corresponds to the destruction of the Temple. His resurrection corresponds to the rebuilding of the Temple in the Messianic era. It's really, really amazing. That teaches us something also about understanding of Mikdash, the sanctuary, the sanctification. 2 Corinthians 6.16, look what it says, and we're going to end with this few uh, verses in here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is the reason why Apostle Paul says this. Because remember, he understood the Torah, both the oral and the written Torah. He understood all of it. Look what he says. For we are the temple of the living God. He was not wrong in saying that. What he was saying is that we are the what? The Mishkan. Okay? The Mikdash, which is what? The sanctuary. That's why he says that we are. He didn't say we are the physical building. He says we are the, Mish, the Mikdash. The Mikdash is the sanctuary. Remember? 
the kedusha, the sanctification, the people. I will make my dwelling among them. That goes back to what we just read. What was the purpose in verse 8? That they will build for me a mikdash so that I will what? Dwell in them. That's what Apostle Paul is saying in here in his midrash. Quoting exactly what we just read in this parsha. So I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Look. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Oh, do you not know that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit within you? <clears throat> what does he get all this from? This concept was already understood by the sages of Israel, and we read it in the portion of Perumah. The Migdash. That's why Apostle Paul is saying that you are the temple to house the Spirit of God. By the way, that's not a new concept. It's not a New Testament concept. It's a biblical concept. The spirit dwelling in you is something that we read all the way back in Genesis. To such a tangibility that Adam can hear God walking. Talk about being one. When was the last time you heard God walking? <laughs> and we finalize with this, folks. The goal... Because remember, what Terumah is a goal of what the Father is doing. What is the goal of the Father? Revelation 22, 21, 21, 22 says this. And I saw no temple in the city. Now, may I remind you that the gold in Jerusalem is there. That's what's coming down from heaven. It's not the temple. It's the new Jerusalem that's coming down. But look what it says. I saw no temple in the city. That makes perfect sense. Why is it that Yohanan said that he saw no temple in the city? Well, if we understand Mikdash and the goal of the Father from the beginning, we understand that where are we going? Because the central point of a sanctuary is because of Israel's idolatry. But in here, it's all going to be repaired. See, there's no longer a central place to go meet God. Because God is going to be with you. Wherever you go, that has always been the goal of the Heavenly Father. And how does that apply to us today? Let's continue reading. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God himself. Isn't that what we read in John chapter 1? And the, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. It's exactly what we're going to see here. And the city has no need of sun or moon. To shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is a lamp. The goal, folks, from the beginning was that God dwell with men. And what we read at the end of this book of Revelation in the Bible is that there's going to be no temple because he's going to reside in men again. In the same way that he resided with Adam, he wants to reside with you again. Do we have that today? Not really. Not really. Not yet. But when we get our glorified bodies, folks, the Shekinah, you know what Shekinah means? It's Shekhan. It's to dwell. That's all. He will dwell. He will Shekhan with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, folks. Where we will hear his voice clear, where we will have that communion with him, there will be no, okay, get away from me, Holy Spirit. Now I have enough. It's going to be forever, folks, and it's going to be great. So, Terumah, folks, 
Let us build his kingdom. Let us give from the willing heart. Let's build his kingdom here on earth, folks, because that is all we got. That is all we have. You'd be lying to yourself and fooling yourself to think that you own anything in this world, folks. The only thing we have is him. And it is through him that we're going to bring his kingdom. It is through the vessels that he has established here. And either you'll be a part of that, folks, which is a great part of being. It's an awesome thing to be a part of. And tearing down the kingdom that's here today and building his to prepare. What do we do when a king comes, folks? I'm going to leave you with this. Before your arrival of a king, probably most of us don't know this answer because we don't live in a monarchy. But what do you do before a king returns? You prepare. You prepare everything around for the return of a king. The red carpet, the musicians. It's a big event. That is equivalent to you giving yourself for him today. Because what you are essentially doing, you are helping decorate for the return of the king. So I'll leave you with that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Blessed be his name. the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, this is, this is something big. I mean, this is like, like where everything's leading up to. So, you know, and here Solomon is building a temple, and it's going to help, like, kind of get everybody prepared for this thing right here. Because it's not just a, a new thing that just kind of happened along the way. It's like, oh, that might be a good idea for him to dwell among his people. You know, this is like something from the very beginning. This has been the plan. And there's prophecies all over the place. We're going to look at one right here in Zechariah 2.10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declare the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So we see this everywhere. We're not going to go through all the prophecies, but we want to do, what does this really mean? What does it mean that he's going to dwell in our midst? We're going to look at these two words right here and get a, get a better idea of what that means to dwell in our midst. So we're going to look at the word dwell first. That is H7931. It's Shekhan. You know, that's where you get the idea. Shekinah. And uh, it means to reside. <clears throat> it means to dwell, to inhabit. You know, so it's basically the place where you live, where you stay. So when it says that's where he's dwelling, that's where he's going to stay. But where is he going to dwell? He's going to dwell in our midst. Well, what is that? That is H8432. It's the Hebrew word Tavek. And it means to sever a bisection, the center among, between, in the middle. So, like, if you have two people standing next to each other, where's the middle? You know, just in between them. You know, that's if you have something there that you can literally touch. So, if something's physically there, you can touch something that's in between them. That's, like, the middle. That's the bisection of two people. Well, let's say you only got one person. Where's the middle of that person? Right. Right. Middle. Right. So, the only way to get there is to sever. I, <laughs> uh... So, so really what's being said here is that um, the Lord can dwell in this physical temple. He can dwell in the tabernacle. You know, that's what Solomon's building. But also in the sense that he's not just going to dwell there, you know, in this physical place, but he's also going to dwell in us. It's really the idea what we're getting here when we look at the language between this. So, if we can really understand this, uh, our Messiah, Yeshua, he came and inhabited with us, he tabernacled with us in this physical world, right? So we're going to look at an example of him to see if we can really get an idea of this. Let's go to John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word right here is Yeshua the Messiah, and he dwelt among us. He was physically here. He could stand between two people and they could touch him. So it's just like in the temple was a physical place. You could go touch the temple and the Lord was dwelling there. Just like Messiah was here, he was dwelling in that body. To <coughs> but there's more to it than that. We also see in John 14, 23, Yeshua answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. <coughs> That's where he and the Father are going to live, is with them. So is he talking about in the physical sense here? Well, he could be, yes. But there's more to it than that. We're going to look at the word for home. We'll go to G3438, it's the Hebrew word monem. And it's a staying, abiding, a dwelling, you know, like a place that you live, like Tavek. But it's also metaphorically of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling believers. Wow. So the Messiah can dwell there physically. You can touch him. You can see him, but also inside you. So he can do both. So, but there's really no surprise, because we see here in 1 Corinthians 3.16. 
do you not, <clears throat> do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You know, so we see in the New Testament, God can dwell physically on the earth. You can look at him, you can touch him. But he can also dwell inside you. So, now the question we're going to look at here, is this just a New Testament concept? Is it just in the New Testament that God has the ability to live inside of a person? So is it a new or an old concept? Does this concept exist back in the Old Testament? This is what we're going to be looking at here. So we're going to look at some Old Testament verses. We're going to Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So, you know, he's speaking about, you know, the temple, either the heavenly temple or the one here on earth. So that's where he dwells. So he dwells there in kind of like a physical place. But then it goes on. And also, that means in addition to, with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So he does dwell in the temple in the Old Testament. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. And he goes on and makes a lot of references to the spirit here. So, <clears throat> God's spirit dwells in the temple, and God's spirit dwells in you. Is what's being said here in the Old Testament. And another example here we see in Psalms 51.11, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. People had the Holy Spirit back in the Old Testament. It's not a brand new thing that just popped up. You know, it's evolution, you know, everybody thinks evolution is like this scientist-invented evolution, this idea of evolving from one thing. No, no it's, it's a religious concept. Science stole it. <laughs> so, but God does not change. God does not evolve. Religion wants him to. That way they can make him into anything. They can mold him into anything they want. But God doesn't change. Okay. So, <clears throat> Solomon was super wise, right? I mean, he understood things that most of us never will. So, did he understand that God, his home was not just in the temple? Did Solomon understand this? Well, let's look. In 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and earth, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. So Solomon understands that God's not just going to live in the temple. He can live in the temple, but he can live in other places also. So this is not just a brand new idea. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not alien to the people in the Old Testament. So now we've got another question. <clears throat> is the indwelling of the Spirit of the New Testament the same as the indwelling of the spirit of the Old Testament. Do they have the same function to do, do the same things? Well, let's look. One of the characteristics of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this. We see it in 1 Corinthians 2.10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So we see right here, when the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, it reveals things, right? It searches things out. It teaches you. It guides you. It gives you understanding. It can lead you in the right, right way to walk where people get the, the, the saying of, you know, I'm, I'm led in the Spirit, the Spirit leads me, which is true. This is what one of the things the indwelling of the Holy Spirit does, and we see it all over the New Testament. But the question is, is does the Spirit change? Did it do that in the Old Testament? Well, let's look. Psalms 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good Spirit lead me on level ground. So people say they're Spirit-led, right? Well, people have been Spirit-led all the way back in the time of Moses, all the way back in the time of the Old Testament. And look, it was teaching people too. All the way back then. Here's another example, Genesis 41, 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? He's speaking about Joseph. In whom is the Spirit of God? Wow. wow. 
Joseph, all the way back then, had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And everybody around him could tell. I mean, it was pretty, I mean, yeah, he had it. But what did this indwelling of the Holy Spirit do for Joseph? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning in his wife and as you. So the Holy Spirit was showing Joseph things. It was revealing things to him. It was giving him understanding and wisdom. It was leading him. Joseph was spirit-led all the way back then. Joseph walked in the spirit all the way back then. It's not just a New Testament concept. I mean, it's always existed. <clears throat> also, we see here in Job 32.8, But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. This is almost just like you can almost cut and paste this and put it in one of the epistles of Apostle Paul. <laughs> I mean, well, same language here, because it's a spiritual man who understands spiritual things. You know, but it's the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. So what does the breath and the spirit have to do with each other? Let's look at this. It is H5397, it's the Hebrew word Neshama, and it means like the breath of God or the breath of man. But in addition to being breath, it could be spirit. So who, who here knows the, uh, the Hebrew word for spirit? Ruach. Now Ruach also means wind, right? Okay, so when you're breathing in and out, you're pushing air in and out, right? Isn't that the definition of wind? Air moving? So, so just like that, breath can also carry the idea of spirit. So what, what's the big medical term for, for when you inhale, for when you're breathing in? Inspiration. 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 You're taking in air, but you know, and you're bringing it inside of your body. So when, when the air is inside your lungs, the air is indwelling you, right? It's living inside you at that moment. Well, if spirit too. So just like you can inspire air and it comes inside you, the spirit kind of does the same thing. It comes inside of you and dwells inside you. And it's the spirit from God that does this, not just any spirit. <clears throat> if you've got a different spirit coming, don't, don't accept that. But the, uh, the breath of the Almighty is the spirit that comes into you. Now, this word for inspiration is taking in the air. It can also mean taking in the spirit. Because even in our own language, uh, one phrase you hear often, uh, you'll hear pretty often, is like, uh, this, this artist was inspired. Or this piece of work was an inspiration of the person who made it. You know, because inspiration can also be like a motivation to do something or to create something. You know, because that's what the spirit does. It leads you to do things. So this is where the idea where inspiration can mean you're breathing in, but it can also mean taking in the spirit to be inside you. <clears throat> so now we have this, uh, this question here. If the spirit has been leading people, teaching people, guiding people, inspiring people... For thousands and thousands of years, do you think any of these people might have written down any of this revelation they got from God at any point? Okay, so if at, at, you know, somebody might have written down this inspiration, this leading of the spirit that they might have received from God at some point in history, do you think any of those writings would have survived into today so that we can see what spiritual revelation looks like? Right. Well, I say yes, it has. Look at this. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness. All scripture. That includes the Torah. The five books of Moses. And is breathed out by God. That's his inspiration. That is his Holy Spirit that is living inside of you, inspiring you and teaching people. That's what it means to be breathed out. So all scripture is spirit-led. All, all scripture is given by inspiration of God's spirit. So if you want to be spirit-led, if you want to walk in the spirit, well, this is how. <laughs> you know, uh, I, 
I always laugh when I, I see people on TV, you know, you know, these little pictures, you know, you, you got these people. <clears throat> how do I hear God's voice? <laughs> well, first learn how to read. <laughs> Step one. <laughs> and then from that point, any voice you hear, refer to step one to see if it's his voice. <laughs> learn how to read. <laughs> That's how you hear his voice. Okay. <clears throat> so now, how is it that the Spirit is the same all the way back in the Old Testament and today, right? Well, Malachi 3.6 for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. <laughs> right, but is that just until the New Testament showed up? Hebrew 13.8. Uh, Yeshua Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so, so his ability to not change survived that transition into the New Testament. Yes. Yes. So God is greater than man's ability to write things. Okay, so, And it's a good thing. Because he says, this is the reason we are not consumed. Because how long is eternity? Forever. Yeah, Ever, that's ever. enough time for if somebody was going to change their mind, they would, isn't it? Amen. Okay, so he does not change his mind, therefore we can dwell with him for eternity. This is a good thing. We don't want him to change. Okay, so if we want to dwell with the Lord, then we need to know the foundations of his dwelling place, right? We need, we need to know how he works. We need to know what he requires for his dwelling to be here, which brings us to our Torah connection in Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So if you want him to dwell right here, you need to make it exactly to the pattern. I mean, he's, he's not saying, oh, go make it out of tin, you know, kick some dirt out of for insulation, and I'll live there. No, he's got requirements. He's a king. He's not going to live in a dump. He's, he's got things that he needs to live there. You know, he's also, he's a consuming fire, right? So if you're making something that's not really built up to code, it's going to burn down. So and the same thing with us. He's talking about us as individuals. We need to be built up to code you know, because we're building up the church, right? We are part of it. All right. And also, second witness. We already read this. We'll read it again. In 1 Corinthians 6.11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. Now this house that we are building, right? That's the physical temple that Solomon built. That's the stones. But it's also talking about us, as we've been talking about, the indwelling in us. But it goes on. Now, concerning this house that you are building, if you... Now, before we go any further, I want us to stop and appreciate how big an if can really be. <laughs> I mean, look at that thing. Okay, so, concerning this house, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Okay, he says he will do these things, but if you will do these things. Right. So, to exactly to the pattern that he showed. We need to build ourselves to the pattern that he showed. And it's by keeping his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. So we have two witnesses. We have the Torah that says this, Moses. We have Solomon that says this. What about the Messiah? Where's witness three? Let's go to John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Yeshua answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Wow. Now, as we established earlier, 
to make our home with him. It's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and live with you, inside of you. But who are the ones who he's going to come and live inside? Those who love him, right? right. So he's going to live inside those who love him. Well, who are those who love him? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So who it is who keeps his commandments and loves him is the one that he's going to come and dwell inside of. Three witnesses. We got Moses, we got Solomon, yes. and we got the Messiah. If you want to have a house proper for the king to live inside, you need to follow instructions on how to prepare that house. And you are that house. It's that simple. The word of God is very simple. That is really all you got to do. You know, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, after everything is all said and done, what is it? Fear God. Keep the commandments. The commandments yep. <laughs> That's all you need to do. And then the Lord can come and dwell inside you. Everything else is vanity. And that is today's tour portion. And shalom. Hallelujah. You know, it's interesting. Last year, uh, I actually gave the same teaching. So I had to change it up a little bit. Could have just played last year's video, right? <laughs> this, is, this is what I said last year. But we want to go deeper each and every time. So I decided to do something a little bit different this year. Um, I'd like to point out really quickly that in verse 34, your Bible may have sounded a little bit differently. Because in most Bibles, verse 34 says, but I say to you, do not swear at all. In the, the, the scriptures version, they actually insert the word vainly. Because in Shem Tov's Matthew, which is a copy of Matthew written in the Hebrew from the 14th century, the word vainly is written. So there could be a chance that he was saying it's okay to make oaths, but don't make them in vain. Okay? And, that, and that vanity is, is well, I'm going to get to it near the end of the, the teaching, but it has to do with doing, doing things without purpose. Right? Um, so last year, it's kind of interesting, um, Athens actually touched on a word today that we used last week that Richard taught on last week. That was the word tabek, um, which is in the middle or in the midst, in the, in the center, among. Um, but I also spoke about fulfilling the vows that we make, especially when we make them to Hashem, that we fulfill them speedily because that is what the word calls for us to do. This year, I want to talk a little bit about uh, why he calls us to do those things. And number one, I'd like to, to talk to you a little bit about the word character. Character, as defined by the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, says it is the peculiar qualities impressed by nature or habit on a person which distinguishes him from others. These constitute real character, and the qualities which he is supposed to possess constitute his estimated character or reputation. Hence, we say a character is not formed when the person has not acquired stable and distinct qualities. Another definition is by way of eminence, distinguished or good qualities. Those which are esteemed and respected and those which are ascribed to a person in common estimation. We inquire whether a stranger is a man of character. So when we speak of someone's character, we are wanting to know whether or not they are of good character or of bad character. Along with character, and this is something that I actually talked to the youth group about uh, almost two years ago, um, and that is integrity. Do you have integrity? Webster's once again defines integrity. The entire unimpaired state of anything, particularly of the mind. It is moral soundness or purity. It is incorruptness, uprightness, honesty. It comprehends the whole moral character, but has a special reference to uprightness in mutual dealings, transfers of property, and agencies for other, and that's really important for us to remember, agencies for others. Now let's talk a little bit about God's character, because we strive every single day in everything that we say and that we do, we should be striving to be like Mashiach, 
because he is the goal of Torah, right? As Paul writes. So let's know a little bit about what God, God's character is for us. So Genesis 15, 21, 20, 12 through 21 begins, and it came to be when the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell upon Abram that see a frightening great darkness fell upon him. So this is the covenant in which God puts a sleep on, on Abraham. After Abraham has gathered the sacrifice and he has cut the sacrifice and he has split the sacrifice, God then causes him to go to sleep. And why does he do that? Well, it is because the covenant that he is entering into is one that requires no action on his part. It is one that God is the keeper of the covenant. He's the only one who, who is required to keep the covenant. It's a promise that is made by God. And it is a faithful promise. And that's what we're going to get to. Because Hashem is faithful in all ways. We continue in verse 13. And he said to Avram, Know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. But the nation whom they serve I am going to judge, and afterward let them come out with great possessions. I have what we just recently read about the Exodus. And he did judge them. He judged them with ten plagues. And they came out with great possessions. So we're establishing that Hashem is faithful in his promises and the word that he makes. Now, as for you, you are to go to your fathers in peace. You are to be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the crookedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to be. It was spoken, and then it came to be. When the sun went down and it was dark, that see a smoking oven and a burning torch passing between those pieces. So here is Hashem himself passing between the pieces of the, the sacrifice, entering into covenant with himself. On that same day, Hashem made a covenant with Abram, saying, I have given this land to your seed from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, with the Canaanite, and the uh, Kenazite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So he gave him the land eventually, because that's what God does. He makes that promise, and we get to enter into that promise based on what he does and what he says. Genesis 22, 16, 15 and 16, says the messenger of Hashem called to Abram. This is the binding of Isaac. Uh, he has bound Isaac, and, he, and, 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 he, and the, the messenger has already called to, to Abram to say, do not slay him. And the messenger has called him again from the, second, uh, from the heavens a second time and says, by myself, I have sworn, declares Hashem, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, that I shall certainly bless you and I shall increase your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and let your seed possess the gates of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, this is the revelation that was given to Abram, for it was then that he got to see Yeshua's day. Yeshua speaks of that when he's calling on the Pharisees. He says, you call Abraham your father, but you don't do the things that Abraham does. Abraham desire to see my day, and he saw it. And they're like, how could he see? You, you're, not even, you're not even 50 years old, and Abraham lived so far, so long back. How could you have known him? He's the Mashiach. And Abraham saw that day in a vision. And yet, once again, Hashem shows himself to be faithful, true to his word. Hebrews 6, 13 through 18 says, For Elohim, having promised Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, swore by himself saying, truly, truly, blessing I shall bless you, and increasing I shall increase you. 
And so after being patient, he obtained the promise. But men do indeed swear by the one greater. And don't we often say, oh, I swear to God. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. In this way, Elohim resolving to show even more clearly to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, confirmed it by an oath, him being the one to keep his own oath. By my own name, I swear it. So that by two unchangeable matters in which it is impossible to, for Elohim to lie, we might have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the expectation set before us. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Balaam, false prophet, comes back to Balak after blessing the nation of Israel. Having overlooked, we heard the Matuvu, we listen to it every, every Sabbath. We sing along to it. It is a proclamation for us. It is a prayer. It is holiness. Because how great are his tents. And yet, Balaam comes back to Balak. And Balak said, I ask you, to, I ask you to, to curse them, and all you can do is bless them. And Balaam replies, El is not a man to lie, nor is he a son of man to repent. Has he said, and would he not do it? Or spoken, and would not confirm it? So what he speaks and says that he will do, he will always do. Deuteronomy 7, 8, and 9 says, But because of Hashem loving you, and because of him guarding the oath which he swore to your fathers, the oath that we've already heard, Hashem has brought you out with a strong hand, and ransomed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, sovereign of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. And you shall know that Hashem, your Elohim, He is Elohim, the trustworthy El, guarding covenant and loving commitment for a thousand generations with those who love Him and those who guard His commands. And so it is important that we guard His commands and that we love Him. And what's interesting is that it's the love for Him that will cause us to guard His commands. Because when we love our parents, we love our spouse, we love our children, we expect obedience. We are obedient to our spouse. We are obedient to our, our parents because we have a desire to have them appreciate us and because we love them. Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You do not bring the name of Hashem, your Elohim, to naught, for Hashem does not leave the one unpunished who brings his name to naught. One of our ten. Is it not? One of the first ten that were given. Bringing the name of Hashem to naught. Well, that's taking his name in vain. And we've learned over the years that that has to do with misrepresenting him. And why is it important that we not misrepresent him? Because we are his ambassadors. In Psalm 106.8, he says, But he saved them for his name's sake, to make known his might. As children, when we misrepresent our parents, when we are misbehaving, especially when we're not walking in integrity, outside of our parents' oversight, then we bring their name to naught because right. we, in, we tend to do things that they taught us not to do. And so we always want to honor them by always, always doing the things that they taught us to do so that we bring them a good name. And so we do the same for Hashem. And yet, he did it for his name's sake so that people will always have faith in him. Faith in the word that he has established with them, that he will carry it through. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who does go up to the mountain of Hashem? And who does stand in his set-apart place? 
He who has innocent hands and clean hearts, who did not bring his life to naught and did not swear deceivingly. In other words, they didn't make a promise that they weren't able to keep. Or if they made the promise, they at least contacted that individual especially and said, hey, I, I can't keep this promise. I need your forgiveness. I'm very sorry that I can't do it. It's better to not enter the promise. But if for some reason you've entered into a promise that you cannot keep, it is very important that you don't wait till the last minute. It is very important that you don't just ignore it. I don't know about you, but in my life before the Lord, there were times when, oh, they'll be okay. I know I told them I'd go to their party, but they'll be okay. They don't need me there. And then later I found out there were only two individuals that went to that individual's birthday party because everybody else said the same thing I said. They'll be okay. They've got lots of other people going. We dishonor that person when we make a promise to them and we can't keep it. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, Therefore we are envoys on behalf of Messiah, as though Elohim were pleading through us. And is he not pleading through us? If we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, and he's, we, are walking, we are walking in the Spirit, we are being led by the Spirit, isn't the Spirit then causing us to plead on behalf of him? Please, repent. Please, stop doing what you're doing. Please, walk in his commands. We beg on behalf of Messiah be restored to favor with Elohim. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become righteousness of Hashem. Matthew 12, 36-37 says, And I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they shall give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be declared righteous, and by your words you shall be declared unrighteous. That word idle is the Greek word argos. It means idle, lazy, thoughtless, unprofitable, and injurious. So if the words that you speak cause injury, also known as murder, because you are defaming somebody's character, you're entering into a promise, knowing that you're not going to keep that promise, those are all idle words. Do you want to be declared righteous or unrighteous in the end? 2 Timothy 2.13, we'll close with this. It says, if we are not trustworthy, he remains trustworthy because it is impossible for him to deny himself. The thing to remember, though, is that if you are walking in his covenant, if you are being spirit-led, then at no point should you be considered by anyone as untrustworthy. Because you will not make a promise that you cannot keep. You will not enter into covenant with another individual when you have no intention keeping the covenant. It is better to not enter into covenant. It is better to not make that promise than to make it and break it. Mm -hmm. Mention your testimony. Bless you, Father. Thanks.